Hear the word of the Lord as he speaks to us. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was very great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And God, we do give you thanks and pray that you would speak once again powerfully into our hearts at this time. In your son's name we pray, amen. Please be seated as you are and grab your Bibles. As always, it is my thought that hearing the word and then seeing it before us helps us to follow it and understand it more and more faithfully as we move along together. We are moving into the passage of Scripture which many of us will have some familiarity with. It is, of course, the flood narrative. Here we have the story of Noah and the flood. It's a popular one, even for those who are outside the church. Lots of people have that story or the background of that story somewhat in their minds. And as we come to look at the flood story, we could talk about the historical accuracy of the narrative that is discussed there, or we could talk about the faithfulness of Noah, incredible the way in which he followed after the Lord in spite of all things, or we could talk about the power of our God, how awesome is our Lord to be able to do the things in which he has done during the time of the flood. We could talk about those things and so much more, and we probably should at some time or another have exactly those conversations, but these preliminary verses do not speak so much to all of those things as they address specifically the question of why. And if we don't understand the question why, if we don't understand the reason why, we are forever going to struggle with the whole purpose and the intent and the very essence of the flood and what that is doing there for us in the scriptures. I have had great pleasure of overseeing, of being involved in lots of different weddings, and it's a, a great thing uh, to do this in my ministry. And one of the things that I do is I often talk through some of the whys of the ministry, of the, of the wedding service itself. For instance, why is it that the groom normally is on the right side of the bride? Why is it that normally the wedding ring goes on the left uh, finger, uh, that third ring finger, uh, why is it, for instance, that the, the best man has the role that he has? Uh, why do we have a parade of bridesmaids that come down before the presentation of the bride? All of these questions and the answers to those questions help to explain and give, uh, give format and structure to the worship service. Unfortunately, so often we just do things because we just kind of assume that that's part of the tradition, and that's no more so the case than when we come to thinking about Noah and the flood. All too often, Noah and the flood is dominated by the concept of a floating zoo. What would this ark have looked like filled with animals and those kind of things? But that simply and clearly is not the intent of the verses in which we are looking at today. What we're going to talk about is the why behind the flood. 
the why, the reason why this is included in the biblical narrative for us, and it's laid out very, very clearly here in these four verses, and we are going to look at four different aspects of sin. The true nature of sin, the true impact of sin, the true triumph over sin, and the true judgment upon sin. So the nature of sin, the impact of sin, the judgment upon sin, and then our true triumph over sin. And the very nature of our sin becomes very clear as this passage begins, and we start to see exactly the reason why the flood was the option that the Lord chose. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 5 there, the true nature of sin. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was very great. Now when we hear the word wickedness, my guess is, and we realize that the end result of this wickedness is going to be this great flood that wipes out all humanity upon this earth, my guess is that all of us jump to some horrific nature. Something terrible is being going on. And we distance ourselves from the nature of that sin, because let's face it, God hasn't wiped us out, and while our sin might be bad, it's not all that bad. And so to justify God wiping out the whole, flooding the whole world and killing off all the people, we have this assumption then that the wickedness must have been so great and horrific that God himself could not stomach it. And so we separate ourselves emotionally from the kind of wickedness that is present here. But that's a complete misunderstanding of the biblical use and understanding of the word wickedness. And when the Bible talks about wickedness, we have to realize that it is speaking not to some terrible actions, not to these morally reprehensible things that undoubtedly result of wickedness, but rather to something that is so much more dare I say, common. The wickedness in the scripture is not a term for this terrible evil, this, this unimaginable terror that happens. It is a term that describes anything that is oriented, anything that is turned away from God itself. No matter how terrible, no matter how gross, no matter how innocent, the turning away from God might be, whatever that turn is, and wherever that turn is, it is a picture of wickedness in God's eyes. So when God looks and sees that the wickedness was great upon the earth, it is not that he is looking out and he sees men and women killing each other and that there's no moral character in there and that everything is as bad as it possibly could be. Rather, what he does is he looks out and he sees men and women who are wicked, who are turned away from the Lord, not in a, in a vicious, horrid way, but in any possible way we turn away from the Lord. We include ourselves in the wicked. God looked and saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. Now, 
it sure sounds like from my own experience that that's got to be an exaggeration. Or that's got to be hyperbole or something along those lines. Oh, okay, look, are our hearts wicked? If we define wickedness as being turned in any way in any other direction but towards our God, then okay, wickedness is maybe something we all share together. But every intention of our thoughts are always evil, continually. That just sounds like an exaggeration because so much of my day I go through life and I think things and I'm, I'm considering I have thoughts in my head and they don't appear to be this evil that is continually pray, placed before us. Theologians have a term for the doctrine of sin, what sin has done in our hearts. And they use the term total depravity. And by depravity, what they are saying is that there is a bentness, there is a wrongness of who we are. And it is built into who we are at our very fabric. The nature of the word heart here, we tend to think of heart as that uh, uh, beating organism in our inside. If we think of it metaphorically, we tend to think of it as that spot where our emotions lie and that kind of a thing. But that's not the biblical. When Scripture uses the term heart, they're talking so much more than just where our emotions are. It's, a, it's the center, the core of where we are. It's where our will comes from. It's where our thinking comes from. It's where our, our essence is. And so when the text here says that every inclination of man's heart is only evil continually, they're saying that at the very core of who the human being is, there's a bentness, there's a wrongness, and it shows continually. Notice here that the Bible is talking not about behaviors. It's not saying everything that somebody does is bad always, as bad as it could possibly get. We can think about things that are so much worse than what they are. Rather, what the text says is what total depravity talks about. It says that at the core of every part of who we are, every intention, the motivations, the focus, the orientation, the drive, every intention of the essence of who we are is bent, is wrong in some way, and it is so continually. Notice the adjectives that are used in here to describe the ongoing, comprehensive, universal nature of this, that it's continually happening, happening that every thought that we have is always or is only evil all the time. There's a wickedness. There is a, a total depravity that is being pictured here that is completely comprehensive. When I first became a believer, I was uh, trained by this one individual. He was my discipler. And part of what we talked about a lot was the nature of sin as we grappled with the idea that we are, as I grappled with the idea, well, does the Bible really portray us as being that evil all the time, wicked in that regard? Uh, my discipler had a, a toddler, uh, a young boy, uh, about a year and a half, 18 months or so at this time, and when we were over at the house, he was just learning to walk. We were over at the house, and I have this vivid picture in my mind. As he walked up to the bookcase, there was this beautiful bookcase, lots of books all over it, and how this, uh, the toddler toddled up to the bookcase, slid his arm behind the books, and looked back over his shoulder at Mark and I. And he just had that little twinkle in his eye. And Mark really quickly says to him, Tommy, don't you do that. Tommy, don't you do that. 
and Tommy just smiles and whoosh, all books scattered all over the place. What is that? Nobody taught him to do that. Tommy had never seen anybody else do that. Tommy is reacting to the every inclination in his heart is turned towards evil continually. The God figure in his life, his father, had directed him to do something, and Tommy just goes right ahead and does otherwise. You have the total depravity, the brokenness, the universal brokenness that the Lord looks out and sees the wickedness that is upon the earth. Now, it didn't take me long as I was learning about sin in my own life to realize that the impact of sin on my life was pretty negative. And so I tended to avoid sin as much as possible because I didn't want to get in trouble. First and foremost, I didn't want to get in trouble. So you avoid sin. Then after a while, as I matured a little bit, um, I started realizing that the things that I was, was trying to avoid were also not good for me. So not only did sin get me into trouble, but it also wasn't very good for me. It wasn't healthy. Most of those choices were bad choices anyway. So I avoided sin because it didn't want to get in trouble and because it wasn't healthy for me. And then as I matured a little bit more, I began to realize that the other thing is that it, it damaged the people around me. My sin damaged the people around me. It just wasn't that sin affected me and I was trying to not get into trouble and that I was trying to make healthy choices for myself, but also my sin damaged other people around me. But the true impact of our sin, the true impact of our sin is not anchored in the fact that it gets us into trouble or anchored in the fact that it's not good for us or it's not found in the fact that it's even bad for the people around us. Verse six does an excellent job of laying out for us the true impact of our sin. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The Lord regretted that he had made man, and it grieved him to his heart. The true impact of my sin is not that it hurts me. It's not that it hurts other people. The true impact is that it grieves my God. Now, when we think about that, the grief or regret from our Lord, when we think along those lines, most of us probably immediately tend to think, that's not very godlike for him to grieve or for him to have regrets. I mean, we want our God to be more impervious than that. We want him stronger, we want him more, more godlike, where he doesn't have these kind of negative emotions. And we often think of grief or something like that would be a human emotion, and that's something that, that we would associate with human beings, not with the divine God. Uh, but that's completely backwards. We have been made in the image of God. We have emotions, not because they're associated with human beings, but because they are associated with our God, specifically connected to our God. Of course he grieves. Of course he regrets. Our God grieves. Now what is grief? Grief is that, that deep sorrow, that deep anguish, that gut-wrenching, 
uh, emotion that, that brings about just a, a terror in your heart. And, in, and the Hebrew word here captures not just the grief, but also the, the righteous anger that associates itself with this. This is not just that God is plunged into a, a pit of depression or something like that, but rather that he feels this powerful grief. And in this powerful grief comes a righteous and holy anger. At what, now, what sets off his grief? Well, grief almost always for us is associated with some kind of significant loss. Uh, those of us who have lost loved ones know what it's like to grieve that, that loss, that, the, the weight of that, the anguish, the deep anguish and sorrow. What's the loss that our God himself has grieved? One thing that in verse 5 that we didn't necessarily look at, the passage begins with, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. And this is intentional wording, I am confident, of the author to echo back in chapter 1 and chapter 2 where the Lord saw that everything he had made was good, that all that he had made was beautiful in his eyes and wondrous and glorifying to him. He looks and he sees all of that, and here we are five chapters later in, in, in this text, and God now looks and sees the wickedness that is prevalent everywhere in this world. And he grieves the loss of the holiness of his creation. He grieves the loss of this created element that is intended to give him glory, to shine light on his praise so that everyone knows and glorifies in who God is. And he grieves that loss tremendously. I would urge you, as you contemplate the impact of your own sin, it is too easy, it is too simplistic to consider the impact of your sin only in terms of will it and how will it affect you. We have a God in heaven, and he grieves over our sin. The impact, the true impact of our sin is located exactly on him, God himself. David writes in that wonderful passage, Psalm 51, against you, and you only have I sinned. This is David after raping Bathsheba, after murdering Uriah, after his child dies, after bringing a disaster upon his whole nation, he then says, the audacity to say, against you, Lord, and you only have I sinned. But he's kind of right. Compared to the grief of our God over sin, that is the true impact of our sin. The true judgment of our sin, the true judgment against sin then, is found very clearly in verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. It's not socially acceptable these days to talk about judgment. I've got a challenge for you. Take a, uh, commit yourself, I don't know if I really want you to do this, but commit yourself to watching the news, uh, the local news and the, the national news 
for seven straight days and catalog for yourself all of the horrendous crimes that are described. You will come up with a horrific list of the crimes that are described by, in the news these days. And you will notice something, that the words that most accurately, most faithfully describe these things are never mentioned. You never hear talk of sin. You never hear talk of wickedness. You never hear talk of evil. You never hear talk of judgment. In 1973, a famous psychologist wrote a book, a wonderful book, and it's, it's worth its existence simply for the title, Whatever Became of Sin. Whatever Became of Sin. Now, this is in 1973. Of course, at that time, we've got the Watergate thing. We've got the end of the Vietnam War. OPEC and the oil prices are going up. We have daylight savings time being initiated. You've got all of these things that, uh, that justify the question in the psychologist's mind, whatever became of sin. And his point isn't that sin doesn't exist. His point is that we have an inability to speak of that in our society. Well, if we have an inability to speak of sin way back in 1973, how much more difficult is it for us today to speak of something that the scriptures identify as looking ahead for every single one of us, and that is the judgment day. Judgment day. It's not some fairy tale thing that we bring forward to scare our children. Judgment Day is not something that just kind of leaks into the scriptures every now and then. The Lord coming in judgment against the sin and the rebellion in this world is something that is built into the very fabric of our faith and our unwillingness to talk about it or our uncomfortability to acknowledge that it's true doesn't make it so. It is nevertheless God's word for us and his direction for each of us, a judgment that we cannot avoid. It is a true judgment of the Lord. And notice what it's directed against here. God says in verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth. And which man? All men. This is an absolute universal description here. Now, again, the historical nature of the extent of the flood and all those things aside, the text here is identifying God's wrath is directed towards all men. There are no exceptions here. God is committed to blot out all humanity, but not just all humanity. All humans and then all animals and creeping things and the birds of heaven. For just as we've talked about this impact, the great impact of our, of our sin, having this negative effect, grieving God himself, it also has that effect of distorting and damaging all of creation. God has created us in his image to carry his glory into this world, and through our sin, when we fall into total depravity, everything in our hands all of creation falls under the curse and is liable for the judgment of God. The true nature of sin is that it is extensive and it is located and grounded in your very heart. The true impact of your sin 
is that it grieves our Lord in every possible way. And the true judgment upon your sin is that God has not forgotten and will not forget that sin. And then you have the true triumph over your sin. Because this text, like the rest of Scripture, does not intend it to leave us in our despair, leave us in our sin, but rather it points the message of the gospel clear into every heart so that every one of us here listening to this text today can identify the grace, the goodness, the salvation, the ultimate true triumph of our God over sin. Look at verse 8 for a second. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Wait a second. Is he an exception to the story we've been reading? All the rest of the verses, everything we've been talking about, has, seems to go fall over itself by trying to say, look, it's comprehensive. Every human being is covered in this. Every human being is wicked in God's sight. Every human being is going to experience the judgment of our Lord. If that's every human being, certainly that's Noah. Or is somehow Noah the exception to the rule? Not at all. Noah is covered specifically by these very accusations. He's part of that humanity who has every inclination of his heart turned towards evil. Why do we know that? We know that for sure because after the flood, in chapter 8, when Noah and his family are the only human beings left, God uh, still proclaims the exact same assessment. He says, every thought of every heart is bent towards evil. The end of chapter 8 makes that announcement. And who's the only man he could be talking about? It's Noah. Noah is not some exception to this rule. But then why is it that, as we all know the story, Noah is not swallowed up in the destruction that comes? Why is he not liable to that judgment? Is it possibly the case that Noah somehow merits or earns his righteousness? The verse immediately following the one that we read, verse 9, goes on to say that Noah is blameless and righteous in God's sight. And so it would be very tempting to sit there and say, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord because he was blameless and he was righteous. Because Noah, in the face of all the rest of his neighbors and friends who are all wicked all the ways, but Noah, he's, he is blameless and righteous, and therefore God says, I'm going to wipe out everybody else except Noah. Although the text doesn't say that. What the text does say is that but Noah who is included in the condemnation, who shares in the guilt of the world, who has that same orientation, that same bentness and wrongness in his heart. What happens here in verse 8? He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor. He did not earn favor. He did not gain favor. He found favor. In the eyes of the Lord. What, what do we mean by favor? Well, I keep saying that word because the Bible translates it that way. It's a word for grace. God graces Noah here. Not because he is righteous and blameless. He becomes righteous and blameless because God 
favors him. The word for found here in the Greek, now it's written in Hebrew, but in the Greek, the word is eureka, or it's where we get the word eureka. It's like in the midst of all of his brokenness, and who here has not had that eureka moment in the grace of the Lord when you get there and you realize that every good thing the Lord is pouring out upon you is not something you have discovered, not something that you have dug up, not something you've earned, but rather you have simply found yourself in the graces of our God for every believer, every Christian that hears this passage. You are saved from the judgment. You are saved from the wickedness that is built into your own hearts because the Lord has found favor with you. You are graced by our God. Not that you will be graced, not that you will find favor with the Lord. You have found favor with the Lord. It's a reality. Just like Noah is saved by immersing himself in that protective covering of the ark, that expression of God's grace to Noah, so every believer here experiences the grace and that protective covering by having found ourselves in Jesus Christ so that we might experience the same favor of our Lord. The true nature of our sin is a wickedness that our God will not tolerate because the true impact of our sin is that it grieves him to his heart. The text says, in his heart, at that very core, that essence of who God is, is grieved by our sin, and he will bring true judgment upon that sin. And for those of us who believe and trust and rely upon Jesus Christ, our God pours out his grace. We have found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we recognize the depth of our need. We recognize the depth of our need, Lord, because we hear so clearly the judgment upon our wickedness. Lord, it should not be hard, and be, through the power of your Spirit, make it easy for us to com be confronted by the wickedness, by that bent inclination in our hearts so that we might turn to you and cling passionately to Jesus Christ where we have found favor. Eureka, Lord, bring the grace of Jesus Christ powerfully into every situation, for he has taken on that judgment. He has become that evil and wickedness so that we might experience the love and the grace of being saved through that judgment. Cause us to be more and more aware of that very gift that you have given to us in Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.